Good evening, Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Good to see you. If you're visiting, crack open a Bible to the book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one on the shelf out there somewhere, or you have my permission to find uh, the person on the row that you're sitting in who has one. You can take it. That's our communal gift to you. May you be blessed. Galatians chapter 1. This book uh, has been called the, the Magna Carta of, of Christian Freedom, because it establishes the freedom that there is for every Christian from the condemnation of the law, but then also from the constriction of other people's opinions and consciences and their man-made laws in the Christian life. It has been called the Charter of Freedom for that church, and it became a clarion cry in for the Reformation, uh, which was first exploded through the ministry of Martin Luther and then carried on by others like Knox and Calvin and Zwingli and others, that the book of Galatians became became Gettysburg. It became like the, the, the Battle of Long Tan, if you know your Australian warfare history. It became the, the battleground for some of the most bloody theological debates in the Reformation because here, and even in the first few verses that we read tonight, we see that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, and that faith is in Christ's finished work alone, to the glory of God alone, and all of that is on the testimony and authority of the Apostles' Scripture alone. This book is for you. This is like Paul, uh, this is Paul's version of William Wallace's running out in front of the Scots with his enormous broadsword, screaming, won't do the accent, screaming, they may take our lives, but they can never take our Oh, okay, these guys have watched it. God bless you. They may never take our freedom. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I'm trying to cover the nerds here as well. This is like King Theoden of Rohan, who riding out in front of the, the horses, riding to what he believes to be certain death because of the vastly outnumbering them enemies, the orcs and the Urukai, the army of Sauron, that is, yeah, I did my homework, that is on the, the field before of Gondor. And he rides, riders of Rohan, arise, spears shall be broken, shields be splintered, a sword day, a red day before the sun rises. He rides in front of them into what becomes his death. Death, but not before slaughtering many of his enemies. That is what Galatians is for the church. Why? Why all the battle vibes? Why does it sound so much like this is a, we're on, we're being defensive, or this is even offensive, and this is an attack? Why, why so many war themes? Well, because when the gospel becomes challenged, or contradicted, it is the solemn duty, not of some, not of the gym boys, not of some of the theological nerds, it is the duty, the solemn, swarm, blood-bought duty of every Christian to stand up and die for that truth and contradict the error and stand firm for the gospel no matter what it costs you. And Paul writes to the Galatians because just that had happened in that region of the Roman Empire. In Galatia, southern area of the Roman province of Galatia, the gospel had been contradicted and those false teachers... Look, the Galatian church, they belonged in the 21st century. They were just so polite. They're very nice, very kind. They tolerated this, these travelers, these, these uh, apostles, they called themselves, these teachers, these pastors. And sure, they changed the gospel, but they were worth giving a hearing to. 
and then slowly and slowly, the, the, the status of the gospel clarity in the Galatian churches became dwindled away so that the church had basically changed its statement of faith. Paul hears about it and writes this letter. When the gospel is contradicted, it is the duty of every Christian, first and not least the apostle who planted these churches, to rise to its defense, even to that death. This is the conviction of every Christian. There is nothing as valuable as Jesus Christ in the gospel. This is what you need. If you have a guilty conscience, a heavy conscience that presses you down and you don't know if you're saved and you've been baptized how many times and you've prayed the prayer and you're desperate before you have been that God would save you and you really hope that he does, if that is your uncertain standing in the Christian life, Galatians is for you. If you are sure that you are damned under the condemnation of the law, Galatians is for you. If you're a Roman Catholic, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon, any other kind of crazy cult, or if you came into the wrong building because you were going to the one across the car park, welcome. Galatians is for you. The true gospel is preached in this book with such clarity that it will be for you either a distasteful, bitter, sour message that you despise because you are dying and going to hell, Paul says, or it will be for you a taste of sweetness beyond everything else. The gospel is the most valuable thing to the Christian. There is nothing that the Christian loves more than the gospel. There is nothing that the church needs to define more carefully and clearly than the gospel. But there's lots of secondary and even more tertiary and even more uh, other issues or doctrines that we can debate about and have brotherhood over even despite our differences. But the gospel, the church has to define so clearly and put so much effort into understanding even the tenses of there's just no such thing as drilling too hard when understanding the gospel. I'll never get annoyed at you if you keep on asking in your conversation, but what do you mean by for? What do you mean by by? Well, what do you mean by the? I've had those conversations before when I was drilling a false teacher who was my pastor. It happens. Not here, by the grace of God. But it, it happens. As in not, not here, not tonight. There is nothing that the lost world needs more than the pure gospel. There is nothing that the devil hates more than the true gospel. The devil loves the gospel. The devil loves it when, when lady pastors and pastors and fake pastors and unqualified pastors and no pastors because we're all equal and when everybody talks about the gospel and speaks the gospel, he loves it. As long as it's a gospel with just at least one degree of change from the biblical gospel because then everybody believes they're going to heaven and they all go to hell. The devil loves a cheap, false, fake version of the true gospel, but there is nothing that he despises and hates and exists to destroy more than the clear and true message of the real gospel. And therefore, there's nothing that the church needs to defend more vigorously than the gospel. That is exactly, that is not just our conviction. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I hope and pray this has been your experience. That, that it, it, you can't, just can't exist long standing on a good firm gospel before you have to start losing some friends or a pastor or change church or, or maybe family members don't talk to you anymore because you're, you're not very tolerant of other gospels. We will always lose something in life, but this is not just a conviction or a theory. This is practical reality and this is Paul's experience. 
So, so we're going to start tonight with an overview of the book of Galatians because we haven't even started verse 1. You're, you're far too slow and you're taking too long for us to be able to make much. I'm patient with you. Let's just do an overview tonight. We won't even start marching through the verses. We'll take a, a 40,000 foot view of Galatians and to do that we go back a few years. So imagine that we are in A.D. 48. A.D. Anno Domini, the, the year of our Lord, 48 years thereabouts on the Gregorian calendar since Jesus was born. Paul has been converted and he's writing the letter of Galatia, I believe, about 48 A.D., the very first letter that became scripture that he ever wrote. But just a few years before this, well, we could say about 15 years before this at least, he was a religious Jewish zealot. He was the, one of the most intense uh, Jews of his time, and uh, he was a, a murderer. He was so high up in the Jewish factions, and he was so far beyond his peers, and he was so responsible and trustworthy and zealous that they gave him uh, authority, legal authority, to be able to conduct capital punishment. And so he would travel uh, Judea, uh, and find Christians, which was really to him, they were just this cult within Judaism, and they kept saying blasphemous things about the Messiah, saying that he's already come, he's already saved everybody, he did it sort of a, in an embarrassing way, and the guy that we crucified just a few months ago, that naked Nazarene who was on the Roman cross, they say that was the Messiah. That's blasphemy to Paul. He chases them, he hunts them down, he has them killed, and then Jesus boots him off his high horse on the highway. Jesus stands in front of him in a blazing white light. Paul falls down and he has no clue what is going on but that this guy's in charge. Whoever is blazing and blinding me, this guy's in charge. He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And then in that moment, he commissions him to be a preacher and a missionary. And then the church's greatest human enemy at the time became the church's greatest missionary of all time. That's what Jesus does. And so then over the next 10 to 12 years, he starts, well, he meets with Jesus bodily for about three years. We'll get to that in chapter two. He meets with Jesus out in the desert of Arabia. He evangelizes. He's teaching. He becomes a teaching elder in the church of Antioch, uh, 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 and, and where he serves alongside others. And then eventually the Holy Spirit calls that church in a prayer meeting and says to them to send out Paul to start his missionary journey among the Gentile nations, which was the, the whole reason that God had saved him in the first place. So they send him out, and he starts going west, out into the Roman provinces uh, of, of Galatia and Asia uh, in, in that area. Now, you're going to find this in Acts chapter 13 until the end of 14. This is what we call Paul's first missionary journey and it's very simple, it, the name just gives away what happens in those chapters. It is Paul's first missionary journey. Very good, we're keeping up. And there, where he goes there, he goes to Cyprus, an island, and then he goes north again into this province of um, Galatia, where he goes in and he preaches um, in the cities of Antioch. This is a different Antioch. His sending church is Antioch. He travels west to another Antioch, and then to Iconium, and then Lystra, and then Derby, and then after doing those, uh, those, those bouts of preaching 
alongside Barnabas where he's, he's preaching and he's extolling the grace of God to Gentiles that don't know this Yahweh and he extols that Jesus is the Christ and you can be saved by trusting him. And then he gets to the end of the journey, backtracks through those cities and then goes back to his sending church. But on that missionary trip, a riot starts that throws him out of one of those towns. In the next place, he narrowly escapes an assassination attempt. That's how you know you're preaching right. Then at the next place, he does not escape the assassination attempt. They stone him with rocks and leave him for dead. The, 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 the mob carry him out to the city limits, throw him off the back of their F-250 truck, and then drive back home. And he, they pray for him, and then he gets back up. Sounds like a revival to me. I think he was dead and then got raised again and goes back into that city because he's an alpha missionary. He just goes straight back into the doors, knocks again, and keeps on preaching. And then he starts uh, 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 traveling, like we said, back through the churches he had planted, back through the cities that he had planted churches in, and encouraging them. Verse 22 of chapter 14 tells us this. He was going back to those churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That is a very fitting message to tell all of the churches. When he is limping, dragging a foot, he's got one eye bandaged, he's literally being dead and back again, maybe an arm in a sling, he's got fresh scars in his shirts, he has to change every couple of hours because he keeps bleeding through them. Isn't it funny when you see a healing apostle on TV with glasses or a limp? So this guy's message doesn't match his, his practice. For Paul, it did. He was there bloodied and butchered, yeah, as if the, the church is there. Paul's back! Let's go meet Paul! And they look at him. They'd say goodbye to this happy, jolly, preaching, loving, healthy pastor. And they see him this time, and he looks half dead. Paul, what happened? The, the mission happened. The Great Commission happened. The kingdom of God invading and taking over kings and kingdoms of this world from the devil. That happened. And there's always blood, sweat, and tears that go along with it. That's what happened. And so they look at Paul and he tells them through many tribulations. And they go, your body matches and preaches along with your sermon. We believe you. He strengthened them. And then he got back to his sending church in Antioch. This is at the, the end of chapter 14. They get back. He gets off the boat. Maybe he's carried like a hero. He gets a welcome. Maybe he gets an Uber. We don't know. And he gets back to Antioch and he's sore, but he tells them. He tells them of the grace of God and how it has garnered a following and planted churches and saved souls and established elders in all of these Gentile cities. Paul says it this way. We told our sending church how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they're extolling Jesus and he's happy and he's visiting their Bible studies throughout the week and he's telling them stories and they're asking questions. And then he starts to notice something. Because rest and furlough is just not what God ever had in store for Pastor Paul. He never got that. He never got a break till his head was lopped off and he got to relax in heaven, right? <coughs> Paul was back in Antioch and he starts to notice that something just doesn't quite seem right with the, with the church. The culture seems a bit off, maybe a bit of disunity. He's starting to notice just a few clicks sort of, sort of start to occur, and he's looking around, and he, he pulls, maybe it's Barnabas, maybe it's one of the other pastors that he left there, and he goes, what, what, something's off, tell me what's going on. Why is Nathaniel Barjona not hanging out with Tony Soprano anymore? 
well, why, why is the Jewish guys sort of sitting more to westward and the Italian and the Greek fellows are sitting over this side of the room? What's, what's going on? What, why, why is Vito Corleone not being able to hang out with, with, with Peter Barjona? What's going on? And they, you know, they shrug. Ah, we thought you'd notice at some point, Pastor. Look, while you're gone, you might want to take a seat. While, while you're gone, we sort of, um, well, I'll just say how it is. Some guys came from Jerusalem. And these guys had masters, they had doctorates, they had cool hats, they wore a, a collar, they just looked really impressed. And what they told us was, I, I think it was something that you missed out on, and they informed us that, that it's actually not kosher. Jesus is not very happy with all of the interbreeding and intermingling that we've been doing here in Antioch, the, the first and great church that's been so multinational. And they, they alerted us that, that as they teach in Jerusalem, so we should in, implement that the Jews and the Gentiles are actually supposed to remain distinct. And so, so we, we, we've implemented apartheid again. And so, well, yeah, you know, we have the, we, we have the Jew, Jewish communion and then the Gentile communion. And, and we just, we sit at different tables now and, and, and we don't actually sit on the same pews. And if a Gentile sits on your pew, we have a deacon come and brush it off and, and sanitize it for you because that's, yeah. So, so, anyway, so we've just, we've realized that there was parts of the Old Testament that you didn't teach us, Paul. And so that's what we've, we've been doing again. In, in fact, uh, we think it's been going very, very well even the Apostle Peter thinks it's a really good idea. Now, Paul's just standing here, and his blood is starting to boil. And I think everything within him and all the sanctification that all of the suffering taught him, he's keeping back from literally swinging at the guy telling him this. And as his blood is boiling, they explain how what Acts 15 tells us, that there were some of the Pharisee converts who became Christians... The Pharisees, they came up to Antioch from Jerusalem and they were teaching this practical ecclesiology and theology that, that the Jews and the Gentiles need to be distinguished in the kingdom of God. In fact, Peter, who had originally been with the Gentiles and hanging out, because he's the one who had the vision, remember, of the snakes and the frogs and the KFC coming down on the, on, the, on the curtain. And he says, oh, this is unclean Gentile food. And God literally told him, then sent him to Cornelius the Gentile's house to preach. So he's literally the first guy who ever see, has this message. But he's, he, So he's loving it. He's, he's sitting and eating with the Gentiles and sharing their cups and saucers and chairs but then these Pharisee Christians come up, and Peter actually, yeah, he, uh, he sided with them. That's how we all knew it was the right thing to do. So Peter stops at this. You'll read this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and onwards. It says, you know, Peter stopped sitting with all of the Gentiles. And he stopped hanging out with all of the uncircumcised people. It's a really awkward conversation. It was like the second question he asked you. Hi, I'm Peter. How did you get to know the Lord? Are you circumcised? hello, this is, a, this is weird, this, this is a strange conversation, Peter. And it was making the whole church very awkward. No wonder the Gentiles didn't like hanging out with the Jews. They have implemented spiritual apartheid. And what Galatians 2 tells us is that Paul, after hearing this in private, he storms into the church meeting, flips a table or two, that's not in the text, that's my imagination, in front of all of the other Christians, doesn't do it respectfully or privately because Peter hadn't acted sinfully, respectfully and privately. He does it in front of everybody. He shoves his finger in Peter's chest and says, how dare you act in such a way that is out of accord with the God gospel of Jesus Christ. How dare you drive a wedge to divide what Jesus died to unify? 
How dare you put asunder what Jesus has brought together by his blood, Peter? And apparently it worked. We don't hear again about Peter. There's no argument from Peter. The next thing we hear from Peter is that he's at the meeting in Acts chapter 15 and he's siding with Paul. I would too. Peter's tail is between his legs. He's whimpering back down to Jerusalem. He's going to call Andrew and talk about mean Paul. Paul has stormed in to the church fellowship lunch. He's yelled in the middle of the members meeting. He says, how dare you? And he starts to investigate. Acts chapter 15 verse 1 then says, you sort of have to take Galatians 2 and Acts 15 and fit them together because they tell alternate portions of the same story. And then it becomes evident that not only had there been a practical division, but these dogs had dared to stand up in front of God's people and actually teach, I'll, I'll quote Acts 15 verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the last time, when it was just where they were sitting for dinner, even Barnabas, the Jew, had been convinced, or at least was a coward and folded to the practice. But this time, Barnabas is on his side. And Acts 15 says it, I think very sarcastically, it says, after no little dissension and debate... It wasn't a little debate. It's like Paul, Paul told Luke what to write. In Acts, he goes, Paul, Paul explained, how big was that debate? We, we, uh, it wasn't small. It wasn't, was it sinful? I don't, it wasn't small. Luke, write that down in Acts chapter 15. No small dissension and debate. They were at each other's throats. Paul was threatening people with damnation, telling them in a public debate setting, go to hell, John, go to hell, Peter. Whoever the hell you are, you add circumcision to the gospel, you are accursed and God will burn you like kindling. Because that's what he says in Galatians chapter 1. He uses this language, it's Jewish, of anathema or a curse. And we go, this is biblical language, but he's very polite. No, it's literally the language of damn you, you're accursed. You're going to hell. You're assigned to damnation. So this extraordinary debate blows up and then they decide, uh, Acts 15 tells us, what they're going to do is the church will send a delegation party because committees fix everything. And every guy who's like Paul needs a committee to sort of pump the brakes every now and then. And so they decide what we'll do, we'll send some guys from Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and, and the testimony of everything that happened in, in Asia in the, in the, 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 the mission, mission trip. And we'll send you down to Jerusalem southwards and then you guys can talk with the other elders and the other apostles and you can all decide who's right on all of this. And Paul's furious because... Real men hate committees. That's just the rule. There's no HR until women enter the work. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just kidding. But he's fuming because it's so black and white for him. And the church is saying, no, let's make it a debate. Now, providentially, we're glad they did because Acts 15 becomes a clarifier when they agree with Paul and, in fact, send delegates all over the empire to say, Paul was right. The gospel is, without circumcision, faith alone justifies. But... As Paul's packing his tunics and his knuckle dusters and his batons, you know, we, we were told that he converted from his old abusive life. We are not told what he did with his weaponry. So he sort of takes up the tiles in his bedroom. He finds the old weapons. He puts them back in his duffel bag because this matters. And as he's packing, 
He gets a knock on the dorm room door. <clears throat> Come in. And in comes the guy. He's sweaty. He's tired. Paul, I've been traveling. I've been, I'm, I'm from Asia. I've, I've traveled. We haven't met, but the church has sent me, and I'm, I'm here with an update. And here's Paul. Just He's realizing, I've, I've been so fixated on this heresy and confusion and disunity in church that I haven't been able to get back to the mission field. And I haven't even heard from the Christians and the churches that we planted. I'm missing them. And I tell you what, in, in this sort of situation, what a pastor wants to hear is, tell me about the churches we planted. Tell me how more people are coming to Jesus. Tell me how the gospel is going forward. That is a balm for a work and ministry worn out pastor. And, well, what happened was, he hears word from this guy who's, you know, he's still, he's packing his bag and the guy's over here explaining to him. And he says, well, I've got, I've got news from the mission field. You're probably not familiar with this, so I'll go slowly. There's just a teaching that they've adopted in Galatia. Would you like to hear it? They've had a couple of members meetings and at the next AGM, they're going to amend the doctrinal statement. And what they're adding into the doctrinal statement, because some real smart dudes, they're real sharp, big white suits, nice tie, and they all came up, and what they've been teaching us is really interesting. They said, unless a man is circumcised by the cut, and before he can finish, Paul's grumbling under his breath, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the one, Paul, you have heard of it. What do you think? What should I go tell them? Does this doctrinal amendment have the signage of the apostle Paul? And as he's explaining and asking Paul, Paul's just, Paul's just turning halt. He's breathing deep to try and keep himself contained. He's starting to pace with his, with his sore hip back and forth in the room. He's, his vision has gone red. His blood pressure is building. He's growling as he thinks. He's not even aware that there's another person in the room at the moment. His, his, his blood pressure is so high, all of his old stitches start to pop, which is still healing. And he starts bleeding down his face. He clears off his desk throws the chair into the corner, finds the guy that was talking to him, throws him into the chair, finds a pen, throws it into his hand, says, shut your face and write this down. Uh, uh, just before you keep going, Paul, can I have a, another witness in the room? Can, can I get another person to keep an eye on what's about to happen? He says, Paul, an apostle. And the guy goes, oh, see, that's, that's just, just before you keep going, Paul, that's one of the other things. The Galatians learned from these new guys that you were kind of falsifying your apostleship status. They don't believe you're an apostle. Change the gospel. You're not an apostle. Is it a good day for Pastor Paul? So with this guy sitting down and him fuming, he says, write down. That, that was an amanuensis' job. You just try and keep up with the Apostle Paul as he, as he speaks. And Paul's over here leaning on his desk, just furious. Still sore with the wounds that he got for preaching the gospel to these provinces. And they've gone and changed to believe something that doesn't earn you any persecution. The guys who stoned Paul, flogged him, whipped him, chased him out of town and started riots according to slander and false accusations were the Jews. His old brother-in-law and his cousins and his uncle, the Jews from the areas of Galatia who hated Paul's anti-Jewish, so they thought, gospel and chased him around 
finding everywhere he planted a church and would abuse him. And then when he left, they got a delegation from Jerusalem to come up and start infiltrating the church and teaching them elsewhere. And here he is just furious. Write this down. Paul, an apostle! Well, he doesn't care what they don't believe. An apostle! Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. This is what I think happened. At this point, he's yelling. The whole building is shaking. And so all of the Christians come up to the door. Pastor Paul, is everything okay in here? Uh, it sounds like somebody's dead now. And they burst in and they all come in. And here now he's got, a, he's got some witnesses. He's got the brothers who are with him who agree with his gospel. Paul, an apostle, not from man or through man, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers that are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he goes and he, he just is fuming, enraged in boxing. They call this fighting mad. They say you shouldn't fight mad because you, you lose all technique and you just go crazy and you try to kill the guy and usually your technique is bad enough to get you disqualified or, or knocked out. But this is Paul. He's an apostle and this is appropriate because there's no rules when the gospel is contradicted. So he is fighting mad, infuriated and sick to the stomach, and it erupts like Mount Vesuvius into the epistle that we know as the letter to the Galatian churches. And then this poor guy, this poor fellow who's writing down what Paul told him to write, he's nervous because this is intense, what is written in the book of Galatians. And, and then he's sent packing back to Galatia. So Paul, he finishes up the letter from Paul. No love, just from Paul, grace to you. And then he travels down to Jerusalem to go and fight these heretics yet again. But this guy goes over to Galatia to go and explain to them what, what Pastor Paul had to say about their, their new fandangled theology. And I just imagine the trip that he made, how sick with nerves he would have been. How anxious he would have... Because he's going to have to stand up there. Can you imagine the Sunday? Everybody! Johnny's back. We're going we're gonna to read the, the letter that Paul sent back. I'm sure he's on board with this. He's probably sent a knife for extra circumcision ceremonies. Let's go. And they all come together, homecoming meeting. They're all sitting down and the kids are doing that Baptist thing where they sit down the front for kids hour. And this guy just has to unravel the scroll. And his palms are sweaty. His knees are weak. His arms are heavy. He opens his mouth, but the words don't come out. And he, he's choking now. And he has to read this, and this is what he reads at different portions of the letter to this welcoming, heretical church. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one I preach, and here's these new teachers sitting over in the honored seats, let him be accursed. Uh, and then in 2 verse 11, he has to read, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. In chapter 3, verse 1, he has to read to them, 
Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell upon you? Like, natural categories don't even have an extent for this stupidity. There's supernatural work going on. You need, you need witches to make you this dumb. Verse, chapter 14, verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Chapter 4, verse 20. I wish I was present with you now and I could change my tone for I am perplexed about you. You don't make sense to me. Chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Can you imagine being the, uh, the, the, the new messengers sort of sitting down in the corner there and Paul's basically calling them all, rise up, get these guys. Stand firm against them. It says in chapter 5, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Or chapter 5 verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is Paul saying, you're telling the bride of Christ that they need to circumcise themselves to be saved. Here is my apostolic command that I would do myself if I was with you. Put it out. Get the blade. Chop it all off. Because a feat, unproductive, feminized, weak, testosterone-less men symbolize what the church is without the gospel of grace. They can't reproduce. They don't have life. They don't have strength. They don't have vitality. And it's not hyperbole. Chop it off. Make yourself an accursed shame ceremonially to the Judaistic system because that is what you are doing to the church. This is the conviction of Paul as it bleeds out through the letter of Galatians. Now, is this not a generation and a time when we need a little bit more of Galatians? All right. Close your book. Go home. You, you're not ready. Well, you're not keen. Is this not a time and generation that needs a little bit more of the fire of Galatians? Yeah. This is what John Chrysostom said. He was a fourth century uh, uh, pastor and preacher. And he, he's just, this is the first sentence out of his uh, uh, commentary of lectures on the book of Galatians. He just admits there's no way around the language of this book. He says, this introduction, just the first few verses, this introduction is full of vehement and lofty spirit, and not only the introduction, but also, so to speak, the entire epistle. For, here's him coming to Paul's defense, for always to address one's disciples with mildness, even when they need severity, is not the part of the teacher, but it would be the part of of a corrupter and an enemy. Sometimes the worst enemies of the church are the nicest preachers when the church needs to repent. Wherefore, he says, our Lord also. So he's going to use Jesus as a good example of what Paul's doing. Our Lord too, though he generally spoke in mildness to his disciples, 
Sometimes he uses sterner language and at one time pronounces a blessing, but then another a rebuke. And he uses the example of when Peter got something right and Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And then he said something wrong and Jesus said, you're Satan, get out of my way, you're trying to trip me up. Thus taught and walking in the steps of his master, the Apostle Paul has varied his discourse according to the need of the disciples. At one time, using knife and cautery, that's a play on words, because when you cut a vital organ, you have to cauterize it with a hot piece of metal. John Chrysostom is saying, just like the circumcisers were doing, Paul chops and cauterizes the flesh of the heart and spirit of his own church. But also at another time, applying mild remedies. Remedies. See, some people want to come to the New Testament and be macho and always yell and scream and you suck and just repent and work harder and you suck again. Be angry all the time. That's, that's not Christ-like or Paul-like. Other people, more common, they want to come to the Bible and always have positive and blessings and grace and mercy and how good are you and Jesus loves you no matter what. And always being encouraging is also not Christ-like or Paul-like. What is is doing what is necessary for the sake of God and the will of God. And at this point, Paul recognizes my churches need, need severity, or they will go down a path they cannot come back from, and all of my work and all of God's work in Galatia will be null and void. So he uses the most severe language. Galatians defends the gospel by clear articulation of what it is and what it is not. We'll be doing that theological preaching as we go through this, defining, distinguishing, uh, uh, clarifying what is and what is not the gospel, justification, the atonement. Secondly, the book is a rebuke against soft, soft Christians. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 10, that the people who don't preach justification by faith alone or come to its defense are man-pleasers. They're cowards. That's why they don't do it. How often have, have even I discovered, and I'm sure you've discovered, so often behind a theological change is really just a gutless, spineless man's inability to stand firm on something. They don't even need to get convinced. They just saw somebody a bit intimidating and jumped ship. That's what he says in chapter 1, verse 10. But it is also a call to arms. That is that every Christian, every Christian, you must have about yourself a spirit-given Jesus-like, God-honoring boldness for the gospel. That even if you think you'll lose an argument, go into the argument for the sake of the gospel when necessary. Not, not always being fighters, walking around church with knuckle dusters and a whip, looking for somebody to fight you. That's not the Christian uh, 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 tendency. But when necessary, when essential, when the gospel requires... Uh, defense, you must be the one to do it. And then the second thing we need also, this call to arms from Galatians, is a readiness because it could literally happen in any church at any time. One of the worst, most self-destructive things we could think as a church or you could think as a Christian is not me. Not me. I listen to MacArthur. I, 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 I've listened to every sermon by Sproul. I've got a systematic theology book tattooed on my forearm. I'm fine. 
Well, this church, are you kidding? Look at our history. Look at our statement of faith. Look at that sermon or this sermon or this guy who just started coming. We seem pretty good. There's no such thing as a safe church except for a church that is actively, zealously, boldly preaching the gospel and warning against the false gospels. That's the only way to stay safe. Luther said this. For the devil, this is him saying, the gospel is... Luther did this funny thing. He lectured on Galatians for ages, and then as he finished it, he came back the next week and went, open up to Galatians 1 verse 1. You will say, we just finished this. I will say, we're never finished with this. I love that. I don't know how many times we'll go through Galatians. Depends on how you answer your questions at the end of the term. <laughs> Luther says, of course you can't ever settle down on the defense of the gospel, for the devil cannot but furiously impugn this doctrine with all force and all subtlety, neither can he rest so long as he sees any spark of the gospel remaining. We also, for this only cause that we preach the gospel, for this one cause we suffer the world, the devil and his ministers, and all the mischief that they can work against us, both on the right hand and on the left. In other words, he's saying, you think because we're preaching the gospel, we don't have to worry about a false gospel. But what's the biggest target you can paint on your back for the devil to try and infiltrate you? Preaching the gospel. It paints, the, I mean, the, the woke, lame, effete, dying church that is down the road and that never preaches the gospel, or it has it right on paper but doesn't extol it, the devil says, work is done. I don't need to attack you. Who's coming? What souls are you plucking from my kingdom? You're not smashing down hell's gates. I don't need to stop you. You are your own defense because you have spiritually castrated yourself. But... The church that preaches the gospel and sees souls saved and churches planted is at the same time painting the target for the devil on their own back and yet in a paradox, that is also the greatest defense against the devil's attack. So the simple fact is this, let's go back to Lord of the Rings. When, when Theoden, having, having recovered from this devilish spell that was upon him by the dark wizard, he, he says that he's not willing to go out into battle against the, the enemy. He says, I cannot risk open war. And Aragorn says, open war is upon you whether you will risk it or not. The only option for a Christian is cowardice that leads to redefinition of the gospel and then a loss of the gospel or taking up the arms and preaching the gospel, come what may, including all of the attacks that come against the gospel, like Paul's beaten body. So this is the message of Galatians. We will risk open war because it is already happening. We will preach Christ Jesus because the devil has so many millions of souls within his kingdom tucked and locked safely away in his dungeons that only the gospel can rescue and bring into the kingdom of Jesus' glorious and marvelous light. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus with your soul, if when we sang that song, in my place he stood condemned, if you do not see your own name, your own soul, your own sin, your own self tucked in that little word, my, if you cannot truly say, in my place, Jesus was condemned, Jesus died, Jesus bled, and Jesus was resurrected, if you cannot say that with all of the confidence that there is in your soul, then trust in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. You need to be saved. And there is nothing you can do to be saved except believe that. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul's life. We thank you for the authority that you invested in him. We thank you for the writing that you inspired through him. We thank you for the churches that you planted through him. We thank you for the example that you shine forth through him, which is so Christ-like. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be conformed to it all, that we would imitate his lifestyle, that we would know and teach his doctrine, that we would live according to his conduct, that we would uh, uh, do church according to his commands to the church because he was an apostle sent by Jesus with all of Jesus' authority. And there, there is the crux. We want to honor Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We want to serve Jesus as the head and Lord of the church who sends us out to preach. We want to honor Jesus who by his life and his death and his glorious resurrection purchased our souls back from what we deserved. He brought us back from hell and gave to us grace and life. We ask, Lord God, that that would be believed by many tonight and that all those who name Jesus Christ as their Lord would live in such a manner that is radiating a love, a love, a love for the gospel. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.